welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Surviving, given the circumstances. Given the <laughs> Exactly. A <laughs> uh, little, uh, little uh, off-mic humor there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, we all were, of course, you and I just recorded the movie journal, so we checked in. I assume nothing has changed in the half hour since we just started recording. Uh, or oh, finished the last I, my, um, what happened just before we finished the last recording is my, uh, my dog got back from the vet. My dog had surgery on her paw, like right before everything went into lockdown. So we, every oh few days we keep having to go for like bandage changes and checkups. Yeah. And the vet in this situation is a surreal experience. What we do, or in this case, what my wife did today, you pull into the parking lot, call the vet and say, Hey, we're outside. We're here for Darla. Darla's a dog. Darla's a Darla's appointment. The vet tech comes out. You take Darla out of the car or your dog's name in this case is Darla (laughs) um, and and hold her. The vet like, 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 uh, like Harrison Ford, Alfred Molina in Raiders of the Lost Ark tosses you their leash. So, so you're still six feet apart. So you take off our leash and put on the end of their leash and they lead Darla inside uh, for her appointment and then, re- you know, reverse the whole procedure when, when it's over. And we've had to do this like three times over the past three weeks because uh, uh, just to make sure her foot doesn't, her paw doesn't get infected. So uh, it's been a, that's been a surreal experience. Uh, so you're just waiting in the car. Yeah. And then we just wait in the car. Yeah. Huh? Oh, I feel bad for Darla in that situation. Like just yeah. being handed over to a stranger during Yeah, a- She doesn't, she doesn't love it. I imagine not. Yes. Um, okay. Well, we've got a, a guest with us, with us here being in quotes, and um (laughs) but before we do that uh we do have some sponsorship information this episode is brought to you the listener by the killing floor the killing floor is the new album by jackson harper the artist formerly known as a horse and his boy co-produced with ryan michael from dallas band the room sounds the killing floor is a raw intimate yet ultimately epic tale of love lost and wisdom gained through 11 songs and one brief anecdote Harper weaves together lyrical themes of heartbreak, longing, anger, death, resurrection, and joy, presenting them in a stark acoustic style that recalls Johnny Cash or Towns Van Zandt. Also, the album is only 40 minutes long, so that's a selling point. Uh, the Killin' Floor, as well as Harper's Music City Exports EP, is available for purchase on iTunes or streaming on Spotify, Apple, and all other major platforms. So I would encourage people to check that out. Uh, Jackson puts out really good music. I really enjoy it. And uh, this is an opportunity. I realize that uh, money's not exactly flowing, but if you have the opportunity to support uh, independent artists, independent musicians, uh, I would uh, recommend you do so. So yes, you can listen to it on Spotify, but perhaps uh, by The Killing Floor on iTunes. And one great way to listen to The Killing Floor would be nice. with a pair of tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Uh, tweakedaudio.com earbuds are, are the professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great, sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Tyler, here's what I've been listening to, other than The Killing Floor, what I've been listening sure, to. There, I've, I've noticed so many uh, artists or, or, or whatever are putting out, like they're making these Spotify playlists. It's like, here's stuff to listen to while you're quarantining. And they're like hours long and I'm starting to get overwhelmed with them because I'm realizing not having a commute, I'm actually, I actually have less time to listen to music. But uh, uh, today I was listening to some of one of the guys from the band uh, Black Dahlia Murder put out just a, like a nine hour, uh, like, like a playlist of metal that's going on. I just want to read some band names just uh, to, to shock you and listen to putrid awful uh, death void terror, my dying bride ripped to shreds um, deranged. These are all the bands that I was listening to uh, today. And you know what? They sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Uh, they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today 
at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Tyler, uh, yes. Let's, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Yeah, still got to find our rhythm uh, yeah. Yeah. Over, the, over the internet here. But uh, yeah, so today we do have a guest. And, uh, you know, this is, as we've said before, in our 13, at this point, 13 plus years, uh, we didn't celebrate our anniversary, David. Um, but in our 13 plus years of doing That's the true. podcast, uh, we, li- we like to be in studio. Um, but circumstances being what they are, we are, uh, we're, Zooming people in. Uh, Zoom here being the name of the company, not uh, the the practice or the, uh, you know, pacing. Um, Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, But uh, I did see a fun meme that was Scooby-Doo related. And it was, you know, at the end of of an episode of Scooby-Doo where they say, let's find out who the ghost really was. And uh, so they go to, they have the, the ghost all, you know, roped up and stuff and uh and it says COVID 19 and then they pull it off and it's the zoom logo because the sheer number of people i know that now have to use zoom including myself uh is staggering but anyway uh among the people that uh, have to use it is uh, someone that has been on the show before it's been a while um but he was my uh, my film criticism professor when I was getting my master's at UCLA. And he has a new book out, which he co-wrote with Michael McClellan. The book is called Cinema 62. It's Stephen Farber. Stephen, how you doing? Hello. Good to be with you under strange circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so obviously we're going to talk about the book, uh, in detail in a moment, but, uh, David, I'll let you ask your usual questions, some biographical information. Oh yeah. Because when you were on the show before I wasn't, uh, I wasn't here. So the thing I always ask, ask first time guests is where did you grow up? I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> like Harvey P. Carr. <laughs> <laughs> is that the only Cleveland? I'm trying to think of other famous. Who are some other famous Clevelanders, Stephen? Well, I mean, there besides yourself, um, some famous athletes, uh, LeBron James. Oh yeah, of course, um, sure. Was our major export, but uh, <laughs> Bob Hope actually oh. was somebody who. Uh, he he was born in England, but he grew up in Cleveland. And my father's law firm, uh, uh, they were his lawyers back in like the 1930s, I think. So that's a an ancient bit of ancient history. But uh, I love uh, stuff like that. My uh, my my mom's dentist when she was a kid was Mark McGuire's father. So there you go. Okay. Mark and I are best friends. Uh, I've been thinking. Cleveland has been on the mind recently because uh, the the Hulu miniseries "Little Fires Everywhere" takes place in in Shaker Heights. Yes, it does. Based on a book, and those of us from Cleveland, especially I haven't read it, but especially are interested in all of the inside Cleveland lore. A friend of mine <laughs> who grew up with me was telling me about all the locations and my relatives who happen to live near the places that are described in the book and I guess the, the TV show as well. Uh, and then the next question I always ask is, how did you come to be into movies? Well, I was always a, a movie lover when I was growing up. And my father, I mentioned, had some connection with Bob Hope uh, as a lawyer, was a big movie fan. And uh, even though didn't deal with that uh, in his uh, professional life as all, at all, but he took us to a lot of movies when we were growing up. Uh, a lot of family uh, outings were going to catch uh, uh, the new movies. So I think that it sort of started as a child. And I mm. think he was maybe a little disappointed that I became so <laughs> enthusiastic and enamored <laughs> of movies. I don't think he really wanted it to be anything more than a great hobby for me, but he sort of got me started. And so, um, I, and I might be step, David, I might be stepping on your, your, your section here, but, um, but yeah, uh, I mean, you've been a critic for a while at this point and I'm always interested 
at what point did you decide like, okay, this, this is more than a simple hobby. This is something I want to do. I want to devote myself to actually writing about movies, analyzing movies, discussing them. Like at what point did you make that decision and did it come with a fair amount of uh, reluctance? Well, I don't know that I ever made an absolute decision on that, but I would say it started when I was in high school and there was a contest sponsored by one of the local newspapers, the Cleveland Press that no longer exists, of course, but it was like a, a movie reviewing contest for high school newspaper writers and editors. And we were invited to one, a screening every month of a pre-release movie hadn't been, hadn't opened yet. So that was kind of exciting to go downtown to the screening room where theater exhibitors saw movies in advance and then write a review for my high school paper each month of the movie that I had seen. And, and it was a contest and the, prize was a one-week trip to Hollywood, and I actually won the prize. So that I was like uh, transported with uh, one of the reporters from the Cleveland Press to Hollywood. We stayed at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel and went to visit all the studios. Um, and, you know, I met people like Elvis Presley and Sidney Poitier who were making movies at that time. So I, <laughs> my uh, parents thought, oh, that was what, uh, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, that's what sort of turned you into wanting to be involved uh, with movies in some way. And uh, we shouldn't have let you go on that trip. But anyway, <laughs> it probably started there. Well, I've, I, I've joked before that if someone, if someone told me a story that was about someone like, dying in a horrible way but the story was they were on their way home from the movies the first question i'd want to ask is what movie did they see so can you remember what some of those pre-release movies you saw were that you that you got to write reviews of i d i can remember some of them uh which you probably some of them you won't know anything about but um Probably the best known of those movies that we saw that year was uh, On the Beach, which was oh, yeah. Stanley Kramer production about uh, a nuclear war and the fallout from it. It was uh, the aftermath of, of, of like a nuclear war and the whole world had been destroyed. And it was a, a major movie at the time. People were talking about it, it got a lot of... Uh, press as kind of an apocalyptic uh, a warning of where we were heading. We also saw like a, a Doris Day movie called uh, Please Don't Eat the Daisies. So I'm sure some of these uh, <laughs> people don't remember much anymore. Uh, one was, was like a Disney movie, a, a live action Disney movie okay. at the time. So yes, I don't know that I look back on there was also one called The Unforgiven, not the Clint Eastwood movie, mm -hmm. but The Unforgiven was a movie directed by John Houston. Uh, Burt mm -hmm. Lancaster and Audrey Hepburn were in it. It had something to do with the uh, mistreatment of Indians, uh, Native mm -hmm. Americans. So uh, an interesting uh, variety yeah. of movies. See, now, David, I feel like, you know, all those uh, metal bands that you were talking about, I feel like if they released an album called Don't Eat the Daisies, uh, I feel like it's, it's some counter-programming there. Well, right. see, this is the difference between a metal band and a Doris Day film. The Doris Day film was, please don't eat the daisies. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's very very some, yeah. you know, polite. Yes. These metal bands don't know how to be polite. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, uh, so the, the, the book that you have released, Cinema 62, it's one that I know that you've been working on for a while. Um, and uh, I've stayed in touch with you as you've been, as you've been working on it. I, I, uh, I helped for about uh, an hour and a half uh, with doing some screen grabs and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, you found some of the photographs, the That's right. screenshots that we use in the book. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, 
it's my claim to fame, I like to think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so... Um, you said, sorry, Tyler, did you say the full name of the... Of oh, the yeah, book? I did. Or, sorry, Cinema 62 is officially, okay. yeah, to, to restate it. That's not um, really the full name. Cinema oh, I'm sorry. Cinema 62, the greatest year at the movies. I'm sorry, yes. This is I what I was the... trying to get at, <laughs> because we've previously had a guest on the show who wrote a book about how 1999 is the greatest year. Right. And so now... After this episode, we've got to have Brian Raftery and Stephen on together to yell at each other. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they're both. They'll both just like really uh, go after each other. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a real uh, uh, Kale Saris situation. Um, but uh, but yeah. Well, if I so, might add on that regard, sure. One of the things that we've found um, with this book, and we've gotten some good press so far, and people have been writing about it, and different online blogs, publications, and it stirs arguments because uh, some people will write in. Many people sort of agree with our premise and feel this was a pretty extraordinary year, but then you'll get people writing in and say, oh, how could they say that? You know, how could they forget about, yeah, one, is 1999. Some people still revere 1939, which was had been re- regarded as the greatest year. A couple people have said, one person said, did these guys sleep through 1974? 1974 was a good year of Godfather <laughs> Part Two, Chinatown. Uh, so 75 was amazing. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. my, uh, not an argument, but uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in sort of points of points of order and procedure and stuff like that. You've got included in the book uh, uh, titles like Last Year at Marion Bad and A Taste of Honey, which came out in their respective home countries in 1961. So what went into this decision to say this is based on the U.S. release calendar? Yes. Well, that's where the subtitle of the book comes in the greatest year at the movies and for <laughs> American audiences, okay. because these you're, you're quite right. Some of those foreign films were released in their home countries earlier, but we based it on when these movies were available for American audiences to see. And we relied on like the uh, a New York times film reviews, the trade papers as well. And that's, when American audiences got to see these movies. So it was the greatest year at the movies for people living in this country. And that's kind of our, our focus here. And, you know, there were some other movies that you could have included that were made in 62, like eight and a half, but didn't, oh, release, right. didn't come to this country until 63. So we did not include a few movies like that. Um, we do mention like the first uh, uh, James Bond movie, Dr. No, was released in 62 in England, but it didn't actually make it to the U.S. until 63. It's a little bit of a blurry line, but uh, sure. our main uh, criterion was when these movies opened in the U.S., yeah, it's uh, I was I'm curious now. I, I'm not in the habit of asking people's age. And so I won't ask you your, your age now, but mathematically I can do it. I was curious, how old were you in 1962? Because I'm operating on a theory. I was uh, like 18. Bam. There it is. Theory confirmed. <laughs> so um, that's because, because Tyler and I both turned 17 in 1999. And so we part of our, uh, you know, uh, what's the word for our, our loyalty to that year probably become is because it's when we were like, we had a driver's license and we could go choose what right. movies to see on our own and, and really explore. First time I was able to sort of go to like uh, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, going to uh, able to go to like art house cinemas was right. in 1999. I saw uh, Eric Romero's an autumn tale in the theater, you know, when I was uh, a junior or, or senior in, in, in high school. And so I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for 1999 because it represents my burgeoning cinephilia. Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of people, actually, that, uh, and I say it, it wasn't when I discovered uh, uh, movies, because I discovered them as a younger child, mm-hmm. but I was like a freshman in college in 62, and that's, you know, when I, my serious kind of uh, appreciation of movies really 
took hold. And in colleges, that I don't think they have this anymore. But, you know, there were like college film societies that would show a lot of the classic foreign films of uh, Fellini and Bergman and Godard and Truffaut. So that was sort of part of our education at that time. And very much is sort of the uh, teenage coming of age period. I've noticed that that many people look back on the year of the uh, formative year for them as their favorite year at the movies. Uh, Bill Condon, the uh, filmmaker, wrote the foreword to our book. And he said that for him, he had always thought of 1971 as the greatest year, because that was sort of when he came of age. Yeah. But he realizes now, looking back, that you know, although there were some very good movies, it wasn't really a, a pinnacle year in terms of cinematic art, but it was personally uh, meaningful to him. And I think that's been true for a lot of people, that their personal favorite year kind of coincides mm -hmm. with some for some part of their adolescence and their first thrill of discovery. And I do think that for myself, yeah, it's like 97 and 99, I'm 15, I'm 17. So like 97 is the year when I'm really, I'm starting to get into like, Oh, there are good movies being made right now. So I become aware of them. And I think it's a good year in general, but that's definitely when I became aware of them. And then 99, it's like, okay, now I've been doing this for a couple of years and I really love it. And it's, it's tough because on one hand, I don't want to be somebody who, who says, you know, you, you hear this like when people talk about like the Star Wars movies and like, oh, they're not as good as the originals. And <laughs> while, while that might technically be true, it's also it's like, yeah, but those originals also shaped your entire childhood. What movie could possibly compete with that? You know, like everything is so intermingled with like who you are as a person and then the movies that were released. Like, I'm sure there are people out there saying like, like, oh, my gosh, 87. Are you kidding me? And just like. It's not on the it's not on the board for really any of us, but undoubtedly that was the year that for some for some cinephile like that was the the beginning and the end for I them. I mean, Inner Space was really good. <laughs> I believe it was an Oscar winner, David. I think for uh, visual <laughs> effects, but. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing is like if you look at any year, granted, I, it's on one hand there are plenty of years where there's a lot of really great movies, and the quantity of them is, is pretty impressive. But then there are some years where it's like, yeah, there may only be four amazing movies, but the four amazing movies are the movies that inspire other people to make movies, you know? So I, of course it's all relative, but, um, but, uh, and none of that is, to, none of that's to undercut the writing of the book or anything like that being like, ah, Farber, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, no, it's more just, uh, I I'm curious, you know, how did you, I mean, aside from just kind of taking stock of things, like how did you arrive at, 62 being the year that you think is the best like did you just happen did you be like well i love this movie i love this movie i love this movie oh wait a second these were all made the same year or like how did you arrive at that i think that is that's a lot of what it is yes that it wasn't like that year or the following year i said oh this was definitely the greatest year but it was more looking back and well uh Lawrence of Arabia came out in 62, which um, I loved it at the time that it came out. I saw it several times within the first year after it came out. And, but then other favorite movies of mine, like The Manchurian Candidate, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, great movie. Some of the foreign films that I saw, like uh, uh, Jules and Jim, I did begin to think, gee, these all came out in that same year. There were so many diverse and interesting movies, a lot of new filmmakers, Lolita, which is a Stanley Kubrick film, controversial then, controversial still now. But, and, and you know, I don't think I appreciated Lolita that much in 62. It was like a few years later, 
that I saw it again and I realized what a brilliant comic film it was. I think on first seeing it, you know, I was just sort of uh, in shock about the subject matter of the movie, but then seeing it again and, and realizing how much brilliant satire there is in the movie, a lot of it provided by uh, the great Peter Sellers. And then I began to think, oh, that was also came out in 62. And then Sam Peckinpah, I got to kind of interview him in the late 60s. And I don't know if I'd even seen uh, Ride the High Country when it first came out in 62. But after I got interested in uh, some of uh, Peckinpah's later movies, then I watched that. And I thought, oh, that also was in 62. So it, it didn't all happen instantly. I mean, I, I say some of the movies that I loved, I saw in 62 and realized they were great. But then it was over a period of years when I thought back and revisited some of these movies that I began to think, this is a pretty extraordinary year. Just the range of talents who were working then, a lot of new American filmmakers, some veteran filmmakers like John Ford and Howard Hawks, an explosion of foreign filmmakers who were really being introduced to our shores and to audiences at that time. So it began to add up that this really was like an impressive range of movies. And I don't think there are that many years. One of the people who wrote uh, just something recently about the book was making the point that a lot of years have 20 or 25 really top movies. But he was saying 1962, there are like 50 movies that you could put on a list as being really memorable, interesting films, many that we haven't even mentioned yet. So I do think that uh, a larger number of classic movies that came out of that year. Yeah, I, you, oh, talk, sorry, um, you, you, you hit on something with, by mentioning that I was thinking of looking at the, at the list when you mentioned the, the range of movies that you've got. Manchurian Canada and stuff that feels very like of the moment right. and, and feels very new, but you've also got like classical things that I think Tyler mentioned, or you mentioned to kill a mockingbird. Also 1962 is one of the movies that I grew up watching, which is the music man. Yes. Um, and that's this great, you know, big classical uh, Hollywood musical that I could throw on and, and, and watch front to back at any sure. point. Uh, it's, it reminds me of right. childhood. Yeah. And yes, that's very worthwhile mentioning because the fact that a movie like that, you know, which was very popular at the time, but w rightly uh, uh, beloved by people of all ages, but that that movie could be made the same year as uh, Jules and Jim and mm -hmm. uh, last year at Marion Bad and, and Lawrence of Arabia and The Manchurian Candidate and To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, a Cape Fear, the original Cape Fear, a very dark movie that... Uh, one of the last examples of film noir made in this country. So quite a range of mm -hmm. things being done. And you know, it's interesting because you mentioned John Ford with um, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, yeah. because it's not merely that John Ford made a movie that year, not that that's any small thing, but it's also the movie that he made that year, that it's oddly introspective, uh, re-examining his own legacy. Uh, and so it's, that to me is, is, is notable. And it's not merely that like, as much as I, as much as I love David Lean in general, you know, he didn't make uh, a passage to India in 62. He made Lawrence of Arabia. Like he made one of the best movies ever made. And I think his best movie, right. uh, you know, so it's not, it's not merely, like you said, like, on one hand, like there are some movies, there are some years where there's like 25 really good movies. This year there are 50, and it's also the 50 that happen to be made. Like these are seminal films for a lot of film viewers and filmmakers. Right, and the, your John Ford example is excellent because um, Ford was really commenting uh, on the whole Western genre and really reevaluating in a way his own uh, mythologizing of the West, because here in The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, he was making a sort of a commentary on how the legends of the West are formed and perpetuated. And that showed a much more 
self-awareness and a sense of irony that you didn't find in a lot of his earlier, more stirring, uplifting Western movies. Uh, the Man Who Shot uh, uh, Liberty Balance has a very melancholy feeling to it, particularly at the end of the movie. It really makes you think about how the myths of the West distorted a lot of the things that really happened. Yeah, I do wonder... Um like what your average moviegoer who maybe really liked Westerns uh, might've thought of it at the time. Like I remember years and years ago, um, my, this is back in the days of VHS, like when Unforgiven, the, the, the Clint Eastwood film was released on, on video and my dad and my uncle watched it. And I wasn't really interested cause I'm 10, but, um, but I remember after he, overhearing their conversation and my uncle, who was a fan of very traditional Western, said that he really didn't like it because it made him feel so bad. Uh, and, you know, and so something like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, like it has that melancholy and it does in some cases kind of deflate the epic vi vision of the Western. So I'm interested, uh, I, I, you know, I know what critics think of it, but I'm interested, I would have been, would be, would have been interested to see what, your average Western film goer uh, thought of the film. I could imagine it turned some people off. Yes, I, I would think so. And I think it, it, it may have appealed to some people because it had a little more of an ironic sense of humor almost about the West when the editor says at the end, this is the West, print the legend. Mm -hmm. And then the very last line in the film where uh, Jimmy Stewart and his wife are leaving on the train and the man who's working on the train says to him, oh, nothing's too good for the man who shot Liberty Balance. And it, instead of like an upbeat ending, it, it ends on a really like, oh, <laughs> I mean, this whole thing has been a, built on a lie. And uh, so you sort of chuckle with a little sense of disquiet at the end that that's um, the man who shot Liberty Valance is not who you thought it was. Yeah. Um, I, uh, so I'm, I'm fairly new to teaching. Uh, and so I've been teaching, this is my first semester teaching uh, any kind of film history class and I'm teaching three of them. And so I got to, uh, of course I get to the 1960s and the sixties in general, is just a fascinating time for film and for, well, everything, I guess. Um, and so I'm always curious, you know, when you look at something like 99 or you look at, or really any year that someone says, this is an amazing year, look at all these movies that came out. Do you think that there was something just culturally that just sort of came together at, you know, cause of any movie released in 62 um, was made, it was, being made in 61 and probably greenlit in 60. So like, do you think around in those few years, what, what, if anything, do you think was, was shifting so that, or was it just like, you know, Providence or whatever, that th this many good movies would be released in this year? No, I think, I think things were shifting. I'll get to that in a minute, but first of all, just to um, follow up on what you're, you're saying, um, actually, some of the movies you're right were made earlier, but you have to remember that a lot of movies at that time had a much faster production schedule. Sure. So like the, uh, uh, a Manchurian candidate was made in 62, even then that's when it came out. Whatever happened to baby Jane wasn't shot until the fall of 62, early fall, like a, two or three months before it opened, it was done on a very quick schedule and they were able to put movies together much more quickly. You're right. Some were shot earlier in 60 or 61, but it, things were different then in terms of the uh, production yeah. schedules of movies. So some of these movies were made in 62. Mm. And, but I think we have to talk about what was happening in the country. And even if they were shot, in late 60 or 61, it was after the election of JFK. So it was a new era in America at that time. After eight years of Eisenhower, we had like a new young president who seemed to represent 
a lot of new waves crashing onto the shores of the country at that time. It really was a very exciting, hopeful period for a lot of younger people. It was like the height of the uh, civil rights movement. So the fact that some of these movies like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was made at that time and was reflecting, even though the, the movie is set in the past, it was reflecting the mood of the early 1960s where there was more of a fight for uh, a racial equality and against uh, the racism that was so endemic in our society. And that was, so that was all going on outside the cinemas. And I think it did have an impact on what movies were being made. Uh, uh, a Manchurian Candidate was one of the first movies to criticize, make fun of the sort of right-wing uh, McCarthyite anti-communist movement of the 1950s. That couldn't have been made in the 50s because people wouldn't have tolerated it then. By 62, people were willing to engage the idea that maybe this anti-communist hysteria was overdone and even comical in some ways because the, the movie is done with humor and satire about some of those people on the far right. So it, there were a lot of new ideas in the air, I think, and that all came together uh, in some of these movies of 62. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Hello? <laughs> I'll have to call you back. <laughs> all right, I hope you can cut that off. I, I almost want to leave it. I appreciate yeah, I how quick. <laughs> I appreciate how quickly you got rid of them. Um, so uh, okay, and if I do cut around it, I'm going to need to stop laughing. Um, okay. okay, so uh, you know, I was looking at at sort. I made a, a sort of list of some of the movies discussed uh, in the book, um, and I wasn't a. I, I read a couple of a uh, couple of chapters. I mean, who's got the time to read these days? I say that tongue in cheek, obviously. Well, that's it the just, problem. I was, we were sent one copy. I was, I think the plan was to share, but I'm, you know, like all of us, I'm homebound. So I couldn't <laughs> yeah. go get the, I couldn't go get our, our copy from Tyler. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, you know, there are a number of movies here that are mentioned that many of them I have not seen. And I hate to say it. Some of them I have not even heard of. Like as someone who, like I'm a movie person, I've got my got my master's degree in a box somewhere, and uh, and I'm an educator, albeit at two community college, but nonetheless, um, and yet there are still some films that I myself have had not heard of, and so movies like off the top of my head, uh, let's see, David yes, and Lisa, me... uh, David and Lisa, okay. Yeah, like, that was what the first one that I thought that I that caught my attention on the list too is as something that I uh, was not aware of. But stars uh, Kier Dulia from uh, yeah from two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah, and it was a very successful movie in sixty two. It was the reason you may not have heard of it. The filmmakers uh, Frank Perry and Eleanor Perry, not that well known today, but it was one of the first truly independent films, I mean, made on a budget of like $130,000, all raised privately by people who were inspired by movies and wanted to make their own. And they got it um, shown at uh, like uh, at the Venice Film Festival in 62. And it opened toward the end of the year. And it was reviewed glowingly by newspapers, uh, a magazine. Some people felt it was the best movie of the year. It was nominated for Academy Awards for uh, a Best Director, Frank Perry, and Best Adapted Screenplay, his wife at the time, Eleanor Perry. So a very high-profile, highly acclaimed movie at the time, and really pointed the way forward toward a whole new method of filmmaking, that it was not, had nothing to do with a major studio, and yet it caught on because of the press that it got and because younger people identified with the characters in the movie. It was about two teenagers. Uh, Akira Delay was actually 25, uh, playing a, a teenager, but the co-star, uh, uh, Janet Margolin, was only 18. So uh, younger audiences kind of were drawn to this movie 
because it was one of one of the few serious movies that was about characters of their age. So it it it, it caught on with a, a wide variety of people, younger people as well as older critics who praised it very highly, and it was an enormous box office success. Given its cost, it made that back many times over. So out of curiosity and, uh, you know, why do you think in your opinion, and it's always hard to know, but like, why do you think the film has, it has fallen out of the conversation for the most part? I would say partly because the, the filmmakers are not revered filmmakers today. I mean, Frank Perry uh, and Eleanor Perry both died quite a few years ago. Frank Perry it did a lot of other movies, but and one of them at least is a certain has a certain camp following uh, uh, a mommy dearest about mm. Joan Crawford with Faye Dunaway, but these weren't filmmakers who went on to be uh, revered in the culture as the years pass. In a way, it's unfortunate that there are certain name brand uh, directors who we all know today. John Ford, uh, uh, David Lean, Stanley Kubrick, maybe John Frankenheimer. I'm not sure that even he is as remembered today because the hey, his heyday was in the 1960s when he had a, lot, a number of successful movies. Then he had a sort of resurgence in his career in the 90s when he did stuff for cable television, HBO, and that was just getting started and doing uh, like new movies. But his feature film successes were a long time ago. So part of that is that uh, if these people did, did not become cult uh, directors, their work tends to be forgotten now. And it's one of the things we hope to do in the book is encourage people to rediscover some movies that they didn't know anything about. And I've heard very much what you said from a number of other people who consider themselves film buffs and knowledgeable about film and of course they know some of the big titles from 62 but several people have said to me gee i'm kind of amazed at how many of these movies i had not seen or hadn't heard of and hopefully the book will make people want to check some of them out now no i as i mentioned i don't have the book in front of me so i don't know if there's a couple of oddball titles i don't know if you got in there there's notoriously one of the worst films with a spoofed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 is, uh, and recently released on Blu-ray, is Ega, the uh, Palm Springs <laughs> Teeny Boppers versus Modern Day Caveman movie. I don't know if that is in the book or not. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and then and what I actually do think is a really fascinating movie that I don't know if it is in the book is Timothy Carey's The World's Greatest Sinner, uh, which was a... A uh, fiercely independent movie that the uh, character actor Timothy Carey, sort of over the course of a long time, uh, made, wrote, starred in. Uh, I don't know if you. I, I'm aware of that movie, but it's not in the book. Oh, you've given us a, a great idea for a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> An entire book just around those two movies, because Ega really could lead to some great film scholarship. Well, the other one I was going to bring up until I looked it up and realized it didn't come out in the U.S. until 1965 is Joseph Losey's These Are the Damned, or The Damned, right. uh, is a 1962 movie based when it was made, but did not come out until 1965. Yeah, another cult movie that you may know about that we do mention in the book uh, briefly, uh, 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 Carnival of Souls, which was a very, very low-budget horror movie that um, got some attention uh, a little bit in 62, but was rediscovered much later and has become one of the all-time cult favorites of 1962 now and probably influential on certain other low budget horror movies like the night of the living dead or, or uh, uh, a Blair witch project. One of your 1999 movies. <laughs> uh, you said that was such condescension. <laughs> one of your, one of your precious 99s. Um, yeah. yeah I, listeners I, at home didn't get to see the, the hand wave, the dismissive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I adore uh, Carnival of Souls. Um, I feel like it's such a, and, and it, it does actually um, 
it's sort of, it's a little bit divisive because I know that there are some people that watch it and all they see is the budget. All they see right. is, you know, cause like uh, we mentioned mystery science theater, uh, the, I think the riff tracks guys did an episode on carnival of souls, which I, which I watched. And even, even when, even though I could laugh at their jokes, I'm like, I don't think they're really giving this movie a chance <laughs> because like, yes, it is a little, it's it's strange and campy in its own way, but in a way that that feels almost surreal, uh, and that I think adds an element of of uh, weirdness and and you know, in a way like if you looked at it from a different angle, you could see a lot of David Lynch in there, right. you know. And uh, yeah, I I love Carnival of Souls, and that's one where it was I think it was. Wasn't it made like a, a company that just made like industrial movies? And they're like, hey, let's, we found this weird abandoned carnival thing. Yes. Let's make a movie. Something like that. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, now real quick, I want to go back to John Frankenheimer, which is a weird thing because there are some filmmakers and I think some actors, uh, this has nothing to do with 62. This is just a general observation that I find that I, that I love to talk about, which is like, you know, depending on a person's age, like Frankenheimer's, uh, as far as I'm concerned at this point in my life, like his legacy is uh, the Manchurian candidate. But for people my age, you know, when I think of John Frankenheimer, maybe I'll think of Ronan, but chances are I'll think of the Island of Dr. Moreau, which was <laughs> taken away from Richard Stanley, given to John Frankenheimer. And like, like I still remember, cause I was like, I think third, uh, like 14 when the movie came out. And I still remember that trailer and just like that really powerful voice being like directed by John Frankenheimer. And he's got <laughs> such a cool name in my opinion. And then you watch the movie and you're like, wow, John Frankenheimer is a long way from the Manchurian candidate. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> and, and yeah, like when, uh, whenever uh, fi film fans or just, or, really anybody like there are some people for whom the their only frame of reference for Alec Guinness is star Wars. And I don't right. begrudge anybody that that's just the way it works. But it's, it's always funny to me that like, he really didn't want to do star Wars. It, right. The movie's still a box office success. He gets his Oscar nomination for it. And undoubtedly that's the only thing people know him from for many years. Right. So right. Right. no offense to Alec Guinness. It's just kind of yeah. funny the way that works yeah. out. Um, <laughs> So I did, uh, we've got about, uh, about 10 minutes left. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. Um, which is, you know, obviously one of the best movies ever made, one, uh, a, a top 10 movie of mine. And I believe that you, if I recall correctly, I think you have said that it is your favorite movie. I, I have often said that it is my all-time favorite movie. This changes at times. You know, sometimes you see another classic movie and you think, oh, that's really great. But Lawrence of Arabia, I've seen enough times over a, a long period of many, many years that it's, it's remained kind of at the pinnacle for me. And I saw it when it was reissued for the 50th anniversary in 2012, and I think I saw it again once after that. And every time I see it, I'm just enthralled by it. Um, it's a, a magnificently sensual and spectacular film to watch. And of course, the only way to see it, can't do it right now, but at some point again on the big screen, because even watching it at home, and even if you have like a big screen TV, it's not the same. Yeah. It's really um, 70 millimeter should be seen, a gigantic screen with outstanding sound that you can't really approximate at home. It was the kind of movie that could only be shown in the theater. It was the kind of spectacle that was designed to bring people out of their homes in the 50s and 60s away from uh, their television sets. But what it had beyond that, the amazing cinematography and the design of the film, was it really had a script of tremendous sophistication, subtlety, psychological depth, uh, a political incisiveness, that what intrigued me, I think even in 62 or 63, seeing it was that, I mean, I always had enjoyed 
um, spectacle movies, even in some of them from the 1950s. And so I liked that part of Lawrence of Arabia, but it also was consistent to me with some of the art films that I was discovering at that point, the very sophisticated, intellectual, penetrating foreign films and some of the the American films that really had a lot of substance and complexity, thematic richness, that you had all of that, plus the visual spectacle of the movie, it really seemed to bring everything together in terms of the grandeur that only movies could achieve, plus the psychological and sociological depth that you found in the most thoughtful art films or the greatest works of literature or theater. It all came together in my view, and I think others feel the same way in one movie. Yeah, it's. I know that for myself, um, I've seen it three times on the big screen. The first time I went with David when we lived together in Chicago and uh, went to the music box, and you know they observed the the overture and the the uh, intermission, and it just felt like, oh, this is great. Like it just felt like an event. Um, and that was seventy but- millimeter as well. Oh yes, uh, and then I've seen it a couple of times at uh, at the Egyptian when they've shown it. Right, um, right, and and yeah, it's beautiful. And one thing that I've come to just absolutely love as as we've gone on is this idea that like it's almost perverse that like David Lean, how did you make a movie this big while still being shockingly ambiguous? Like, it feels like you're playing a trick on someone. Um, like, I, I do know, I have a friend who, who knows how much I like Lawrence of Arabia, uh, and he respects that, but he disagrees. He prefers Bridge on the River Kwai, which I also love, by the way. Right, right. Um, and, and he says, that he goes, oh, to me, that is such a, such a better movie. There's just so much more going on. And he doesn't, he's not saying that, like, nothing happens in Lawrence of Arabia, but he's just like, there's just so much more stuff to, like, so much like tangible stuff to like sink your teeth into in uh bridge on the Kwai. And to me, it's like, yeah, I think when I was, I think I probably used to agree with that idea, but as I get older, I really, I much prefer the odd, almost poetry of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it's, I just, it, it's, it's an experience. And at the end of it, you're just like, I don't totally know where I stand on this guy uh, right. or where he stands on himself, you know? And it's and that to me is one of the most amazing things about the film and about a lot of movies in general. Like another one that I think of is like Apocalypse Now. You you've got this giant spectacle, and at the core of it is just a big question that goes unanswered. Right, right. And it's well, not even totally asked at the time. But anyway, yeah. I mean, Kwai is as you say another great movie, but it fits more into. I suppose it has elements of. Uh, suspense, a thriller, war movie, you know, are they going to be able to (laughs) destroy the bridge at at the end of the movie? It's kind of a a classic suspense sequence there. But the character that Alec Guinness plays is a very complicated figure like Peter O'Toole's character of uh, uh, Lawrence Arabia. So there are certain consistencies there. I think that Lawrence took even more chances with the form of the epic form of making a much more ambiguous and psychologically thoughtful movie. And both movies, of course, are very downbeat, ultimately, for big budget movies that won Academy Awards and were big successes at the box office. They ended both of them a very downbeat way, which is just interesting that filmmakers and even studios at the time trusted the audience enough to feel that they could tolerate a movie, an expensive movie, that didn't end on an uplifting, cheerful note that so many blockbuster movies ended on. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, the hero is totally defeated at the end of the movie. Of course, he dies that we saw at the beginning, but at the end, his whole adventure in 
Arabia has come to an end and not at all in a satisfying way for him. That was a bold note to end a movie of that period on, and yet it didn't prevent the movie from being like, uh, it was the biggest success that came out that year. There was a trust in the audience that I miss and I, and I relish when I look back at these movies from 62. Well, that sounds like a good note to uh, to end on. Once again, the, the book is called Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies, uh, written by Stephen Farber and Michael McClellan, forward by Bill Condon. Um, so, and, of uh, course, screenshots procured by Tyler Smith. That's yes, on the, that's right. That's, that's look, on hey, the jacket, right? <laughs> the point is this. Film is a visual medium, so without those screenshots, there's no book. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Very but, good uh, point. Yeah, you know, I'm just... Uh, whatever it's fine it's i'm it's, there's a royalty situation but it's fine um anyway uh but yeah so uh steven uh, obviously the book is available uh various places amazon i would assume um but you also have a, a website uh yes. just com. yes steven with a ph right and there's some information about the book there absolutely yes um, but it's available at a lot of different uh, online um uh, booksellers. And uh, yes, there's plenty of ways to find the book, either the hardcover book or the ebook uh, is also available. Yeah, it's it's something that I, uh, again, I and I and I read, as I said, just a couple of chapters. Uh, and I love I really like the way it's written. Um, so well done on that. Uh, and it's and it's just interesting. Like, it's fun to me reading about movies. Um, and sort of dissecting what they're about, what they're trying to do and stuff like that. And there are so many other movies discussed in the book that we didn't even get to here. Right. And that's okay. That's why people should read it. Um, yes. But anyway. Uh, okay. So David, I'll let, I'll uh, throw it to you. Yeah. You can find, uh, you can find us at battleship pretension.com. You can email us at David at battleship pretension.com or Tyler at battleship pretension.com. You can follow me, David on Twitter at, Davey pretension this week on at battleship pretension.com among other things, uh, Tyler, Tyler interviewed a uh, YouTube film personality at the cinema snob. His name um, is Brad Jones, but he's Brad known Jones. as the cinema snob. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, Alex wrote a little piece on, uh, Juan Carroy's days of being wild. I posted a review of the flick rally Blu-ray release of uh, Sevalad Padovkin's Bolshevik trilogy. Uh, that's all at battleshippretension.com. Uh, Tyler, you're on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, yes. Anything you need to plug right now? Uh, there is my documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, which you can find on faithlifetv.com. Uh, but then also I did want to briefly mention the Patreon uh, because uh, one thing that we do on Patreon is once a month, we will pick a year at random and we will talk about our five favorite movies of that year. And one of the film, one of the years that we did pick once again at random was 1962. And so uh, Patreon uh, subscribers can check that out. Yeah. I don't remember uh, how long ago that was, but, uh, but you can find five it. movies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We, um, uh, we did it, uh, or at least personally, I did a different rule. I did, based on release in home country. So my, so my list did include things like, uh, like the exterminating angel and uh, Cleo from five to seven. I think we both put Cleo from five to seven yeah. on, on our lists. Um, but uh, and it's, it's not, I guess it's probably not much of a spoiler to say that we both had the same number one, which was <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Um, and uh, also if you, uh, if you do subscribe to the Patreon listeners, uh, which you can do at patreon.com slash battleship retention this week, uh, I made Tyler, we did 20 questions where I made Tyler guess all the recent celebrity sightings that I've had uh, in Beverly Hills back when I used to be able to leave the house. <laughs> uh, so that was a lot of fun. I exceed 20 questions on many on of them. Some of them. Uh, you did pretty well, but uh, I, I sleep so well after we do those because I'm exhausted <laughs> by the end of them. Well, Stephen, uh, again, the book is Cinema 62. Thank you so much for being here. It's, uh, uh, you can find information at stephenfarber.com, right? Right. And uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. Great to talk to both of you. And thank you again, Tyler, for your screenshots. Oh, hey, anytime, anytime. <laughs> when you want to do a follow-up, I've got some Ega City uh, screenshots ready. Um, okay. okay. But, uh, yes, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
Take care. Stay well. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 